identity seems to be one of the driving forces in our current cultural moment. What it means to be authentically you or authentically me. It's the dominant pursuit of our time. Older ways of thinking about self, such as how we interact with our community, how we act with other people, how we describe ourselves in light of other people in our relationship now are just considered to be passe. Have you noticed that the idea of being free from authority, being free from being conformed to authority requires you to be conformed somewhere else? I mean, just think about times in our past when, when the, the, the youth in our culture have rebelled against the authority of their parents. I know that never happens in anyone in our church. I know that. But in the past, I'm thinking of in my younger days, we as a youth, as a group of youth might rebel against our parents and everything that they did, we want to do something else. They gather at the country club, we're going to Woodstock. They wear suits and ties and dresses. We're wearing jeans and halter tops and mini skirts. They listen to one kind of music, whatever that was, we're going to listen to rock and roll. Whatever it is, we separate from them in our rebellion because we don't want to conform ourselves to that authority. And what do we do in the midst? We create a new culture where everybody dresses the same and looks the same and talks the same and listens to the same music and goes to the same places. And we're conformed to that new community with its standards with its rules, with its regulation, even if it's only don't do what they did. There's a new conformity that happens. We end up conforming ourselves into that conformity because freedom from authority is impossible. We're always under authority. Carl Truman in his book, Strange New World, which is a shorter, concise treatment of a book he wrote called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, talking about the philosopher Rousseau and his influence on this idea of self and identity today. And he says, Rousseau is particularly significant because he offers a compelling and influential articulation of two ideas that help us to understand the modern notion of self. First, he locates identity in the, inter, in the inner psychological life of the individual. Feelings, for Rousseau, are central to who we are. And second, he sees society, or perhaps better culture, as exerting a corrupting influence on the self. To the extent that society prevents us from acting consistently with our feelings... To that extent, it prevents us from being who we really are. In short, society makes us inauthentic. And that's what happens today. We, uh, the idea of identity tends to flow in most circles from whatever my emotions and my thoughts tell me. This is why we have birthing women. This is why we have men who can be pregnant. This is why we have these idiotic statements because identity is driven by whatever I think inside of myself. Now, here's the thing about that. Tomorrow when I wake up and I feel different, my identity shifts and you better shift with me, right? That's what happens in our society. This is what we're, this is what we're living in the midst of. Identity is what someone thinks about themselves. If we as a people group or a culture, say something against that, then we have denied the authenticity of their self. Truth is inside, not outside. Truth is internal, what I think and feel, not external, tied to a being who is truth. This is the world we live in. It's the world we're called to live in, to preach in, to raise our children, and to serve our Lord, a world in which the culture will condemn us with cancel culture, violence, even by legal means if possible, if our beliefs and practices invalidate someone else's emotional, self-driven identity. Now we have to ask ourselves some questions in the midst of that, because it's easy to point our finger, isn't it? But where do we find our identity? As believers in Jesus Christ, where do we find our identity? And I don't want the Sunday school answer because everybody can give that, right? Jesus, true, but I'm asking you where you practically, where your life reveals that you find your identity. That's the question before us. 
We have to answer two questions before we can even figure out how we live and serve God in our society. The first question is, who am I? And the second question is, what difference does it make? Who am I? What is my identity? And what difference does it make? Or to put it another way, how do you identify and what difference does it make that you've identified in this way? By what standard do you identify as a person? By what standard do you live your life? Something internal, like your emotions or your feelings, or something external, like the one true living God who is truth in himself? Once we answer this and repent wherever we need to, then we can begin to ask and answer other questions such as, who is my community and to what norms am I conforming and whose authority, to whose authority am I submitting? How we actually live. But first we have to establish who we are and what difference it will make as we make those decisions. And this is what Isaiah wants to help us to answer in chapter 41. The assumption, track with me on this, The assumption that he makes when he starts chapter 41 is the same assumption that we have to make. And that assumption is that God has spoken and acted and we are called to respond rightly. God has spoken in his word. God has spoken and he has acted in his world. And we are called as human beings to respond rightly. And we'll see the the positive example and a negative example of that in Isaiah 41. And as we do so, we are going to remind ourselves who we are in Christ. Because that drives how we live in this world. That drives the difference it makes when we engage with the world as we live in obedience to his word. Stand with me as we read Isaiah 41 verses 1 through 20. a longer passage, but I want us to feel it all the way through without breaks before we dive into it. Isaiah 41, listen to me in silence, O coastlands, let the peoples renew their strength, let them approach, then let them speak, let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east? whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, The first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who are against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, Yahweh, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, 
new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall, sh- you shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. You and you shall rejoice in Yahweh, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, Yahweh, will, it, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. The grass withers and the flower falls. The Lord, the Lord forever. You may be seated. So in Isaiah 41, 1 through 20, we are shown two responses to God's invitation for the world to come and renew their strength as he acts. We find that in verses 1 through 4. The call to come and renew their strength as he acts. And then in 5 through 20, we are shown these two responses to God's invitation to the world to come and renew their strength as he acts. First, when God invites and acts, his enemies fear. Now, where does this invite and act come from? It comes right from our text. Look at verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Now, the coastlands in Isaiah, it's a code word most of the time for all the Gentile nations everywhere. How do we know that? Just jump down real quickly to verse 5 and look at the parallelism we find in verse 5. The coastlands, the ends of the earth. So even there, Isaiah is drawing the ends of the earth and the coastlands together as two terms referring to one group. That is, all of those who are not God's people, all the Gentile nations, he's making this call to everyone. It goes out to all the nations. And what does he say? Let the people renew their strength. He says, listen to me in silence. So what does that tell us? God's word is more important than ours, right? When he speaks, we are to listen. But he also says, let them renew their strength. Now, is this, is this an evangelistic call? Remember how we ended up chapter 40. Look at verse 31 of chapter 40. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Is it that? Is he saying, I am the way that you renew your strength. So come to me and listen. And I think it is. But it's also, if you're going to come to me on your own strength, you better renew it because you stand before me. So this is the challenge. Come and renew your strength. Are you going to do it from your strength inside or are you going to do it from my strength by waiting on me, resting in me, trusting in my salvation? That is the call to the nations. And he says, let them approach Then let them speak. So come in silence, listen to me, and then let them speak. So he's inviting them to speak. And we're going to pick up this whole theme again of a courtroom scene where there's this disputation that happens next week when we get to chapter 41, verse 21. We'll find that whole courtroom scene where the nations are invited to test their wares against the one true creating God. Let us together draw near for judgment. So judgment here isn't isn't merely just God's going to pronounce a judgment on sinners. It is we're going to draw near for a decision. When you wait in a courtroom and all the evidence has been given and, and the jury speaks, they're giving a decision on all that evidence. And that's the idea that's being given here, a, a decision probably after the debate happens. So look at verse 2. God starts. Yahweh starts and he asks a question. And he asks a question, who stirred up? And then he begins describing this leader that has been stirred up. Now the leader is not mentioned here in chapter 41. So in one sense, we apply this to every leader. We already have established in Isaiah, if we've established nothing else, we've established that God is sovereign. Amen? So if there is a leader who raises up and conquers other nations, who gives him the power and authority to do that? 
It is Yahweh, whether they follow him or not. This is why he can whistle and Assyria comes, because they do his bidding. So in one sense, this is a description of any nation who is powerful. With all the transitions between all the powerful nations in the world, God is the one who's accomplishing his purposes through them. But in the context of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 48, we are, we are seeing, I think, a nod toward Cyrus, who will be named in chapter 45, that Babylonian, the one who comes in over the Babylonians and destroys them, the, the king of Persia. He starts out as a Median, and he, he rules the Medo-Persia empire, and he is the one who comes in and overtakes Babylon, and God uses him to free up his people after the exile to go back and rebuild their temple. We'll, we'll learn much more about him later. I think he is in view here, but since he's not named, we easily can see even in our own world, even in our own nation, if there is a king set in place, who has placed that king there? If there's a president or a senator or a representative or a governor or a mayor or a dog catcher in place, who has placed them in the authority position to carry out his laws? It is God who has done this. So keep all of that in mind as we listen to what God has done. He has stirred up this person from the east. Now, in, 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 for, for Judah, everyone's coming from the east. And they're probably coming from the north as well, around the desert. So this is a foe that's coming in. Victory meets them at every step. I think this is better. Righteousness meets them at every step. It's the word for righteousness, which can mean victory. But I think here, everything that they're doing meets what God intends for them to do. So it's called righteous. So righteousness meets them at every step. Uh, the, all the nations he gives up, are, are overtaken by him. He transfers, tramples them under feet. Uh, he uses all this, Isaiah uses all this expressive language. He makes them like dust with his sword, driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. That is literally shalom, peace. He passes on in peace in verse three. This little phrase, by paths his feet have not trod, I think that's trying to say, he's moving so quickly, it's like his feet are not even touching the ground. This is a powerful warrior. This is one that all the world will fear. And then verse four brings us to the question that Yahweh asks all the nations, who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. Who has established his purposes from the beginning? And he's asking them to answer. And the implied question is, do your gods do this? The gods that you worship, can they do this? And he answers the question for them. As they're listening in silence before they even speak, I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am he. What a pregnant statement that is, isn't it? We see that same statement several more times in chapters uh, 41 through 45. Three more times, I think we'll see that same kind of a statement. It's what Revelation says of Jesus in chapter one, two different times. This is that designation that he is the one true God. He is the only one who can accomplish this. And the nations are brought together to hear his testimony. And he's going to make a judgment on their response. So this is the speaking and the acting that is before us in this chapter. We'll pick it up again in, in verse 21, and we'll see even a further challenge of this. That'll be the, the main subject, this idea of idolatry, which we're about to move to in chapter 41, verse 5, becomes very prominent in 21 through 27, and it will be a theme for 41 through 48. It'll be a constant theme of idolatry of the nations and the sovereignty of God and his power over their idolatry. It's constant for us. So it's brought um, for, before us here clearly. And as we move into verse five, this is where our outline actually begins. Verses one through four is the invitation to come and renew their strength as he acts, as he speaks and acts. So when God invites and acts, his enemies fear. And then what we'll see beginning in verse eight is when God invites and acts, his servants fear not. That's the stark contrast. This is the stark contrast when God speaks and he has revealed himself, how will we respond? Where will we find our identity? In what we think about what he says or in the truth and reality of what he actually says? So in verse five, they come in fear and trembling. Now verses five through um, seven are, are almost like a comedy show. 
I mean, we should be reading this as if we're watching uh, a Shakespearean farce or Saturday Night Live back when they used to be funny long time ago, uh, watching something like a Monty Python skit or something, and we're, we're intended to laugh. That's the intent. That's what this is. This is comical. This is farcical before us. Look what happens. The coastlands, verse 5, have seen, what have they seen? They've seen Yahweh. They've seen his actions. They've heard him speak. And when they do, they're afraid. Another way of saying the same thing, the ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. So they've obeyed God physically, they've drawn near and come, but they are not turning to him spiritually, are they? Because they're fearing and trembling. And that could be, listen, fearing and trembling is a good thing, is it not? If we're before the Lord Almighty, this is why this, this idea of fearing is all the way through the scriptures. And we'll deal with this a little bit more when the words actually come up to not fear. But this idea of fear and trembling, we should be fearing and trembling when we're before our God. But we're not fearing and trembling because we're in danger of his judgment. We're fearing and trembling because of the goodness and perfection of his character and the power and the reach of his arm. This is one that we stand before him in reverent fear and worship, in reverent worship before him. And I'm not trying to say there's no fear in it. I mean, if we're, if we're before the creator of the universe and we're not afraid, if we're not afraid of his majesty and power and sovereignty and strength as opposed to us, then we don't understand him and we definitely don't understand who we are. So there is a fear and trembling that leads to godliness, but this fear and trembling leads to what they're thinking, their internal strength. Look at what it says. They build idols for their strength rather than wait on Yahweh for his. Look at verse six. So they've drawn near to God. They've listened, they've come, they've obeyed him there, but they are not renewing their strength in him by waiting on him. They're about to take measures into their own hand. Everyone helps his neighbor. Now mark that word helps. Every person helps another person. So where does that strength come from? The person. Every, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Suck it up and be, be brave. Understand that you have this. You go, girl. You can do this. This is pop psychology right in front of us. Calling up our own strength instead of calling up the one who is offering us his strength. That's what chapter 40 is all about, isn't it? The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, he strengthens him who strikes the anvil. They're strengthening each other. But what are they doing? They're responding to the holiness of God by saying, hmm, I think we'll build another idol. Maybe we need a new idol. This seems to be a new threat. We probably need a new idol here. And we in the peanut gallery are going, oh, that's a wrong decision. That's a bad decision. Saying of the soldering, the making, the craftsmanship, it is good. Now, what does God say when he creates the world? He says it's good. And so they're not caring what the God who created the universe says is good. They're looking at their solders, their joints, the way they've made their idol, and they're patting each other on the back and said, you be strong, because that's really good. That's really a good idol. And they strengthen it with nails so it cannot be moved. <laughs> we should insert there from the peanut gallery, you mean you think it can't be moved? Because every man-made idol is nothing. They don't hear, they don't see, they don't speak, they don't think, they can accomplish Nothing. And yet this is where they turn. Is this the right response before a holy God? Is this the way to wait on God and wait for salvation from him and have your strength renewed in the one who is all strength? It is patently the opposite, isn't it? It is the opposite of what they should be doing. Well, we should come down from the peanut gallery for just a minute. Come down from the place where we laugh because it's meant to be funny the God who raises up nations and puts them down when he pleases is to be combated by an idol made of wood, by our own hands and our own strength. And yet, how many times do you and I turn to something other than Christ and his word to draw our strength from, to draw our wisdom from? 
to draw the knowledge of how we should act, how we should worship, how we should respond to uh, difficult things in our lives. How many times do you and I go to the idol well instead of the sovereign one in history? And we, even if we would never say this, we're the Bible church, we would never say this, but we would say, I would need scripture and in order to be successful in my endeavor. How many times do we do that? Even if we would never say it, this is the way we act. We are the ones who look at each other and say, your soldering's really good. I hope your idol stands up when what we have offered to us is the creator God of the universe who says, you want strength? Come to me. Wait on me for your salvation. Wait on me for the power that I give you. Don't take things in your own hand. Do things according to my word. Do things according to my power. Trust in my son and everything that he's accomplished. Get rid of all the things that you think are going to earn you favor before me because your one sin back before you were born already ruined your favor, my favor before you. You need my son is what the Holy One of the universe says. And yet we are tempted to constantly go to other wells and build other idols. Well, that's not who we are. That's finding our identity in whatever we think that day, isn't it? It's finding my identity in whatever emotions I'm feeling. It has nothing to do with the truth of God externally. It all has to do with what I'm thinking that day, what I think I need. Now, I am astutely avoiding building a whole bunch of scenarios here. It's not my goal to try to picture every single scenario in which you or I build idols instead of trusting God. My trust is the Holy Spirit reveals that to you because my goal is not to pick on anyone here. My goal is to pick on all of us at exactly the same time that our faith needs to be strengthened and when we try to go other places for wisdom, we're building idols. When we try to go other places for strength, we're building idols. When we make excuses for our sin, we're building idols. When we refuse godly counsel in our life, we're building idols. When we, all these things that we do that are against the word of God, we're building our idols and we're locking arms with others who are saying, that's a good joint you just made there. That's a good soldering. We can't do that. So now that we're down from the peanut gallery and in the midst of the conviction, can we remind ourselves where we take our um, personhood from? Can we remind ourselves who we are in Christ? Because if we can remind ourselves who we are in Christ, we can turn away from those idols and we can put our faith and trust in Christ. And then he renews our strength. And we're going to have some grand pictures of how he does that. So when God invites and acts, his enemies fear. Because what else can they possibly do? But when God invites and acts, his servants fear not. Look at verse 8. The first thing we see is Yahweh helps his chosen and called servants overcome their enemies. We see this in verses 8 through 13. Now, I could have divided this section up in many other smaller points, but I want you to see that verse 8 starts with servant, verse 9 ends with servant, and then verse 11, 12, and 13 begin to tell us what God does on behalf of his servants. So Yahweh helps his chosen and called servants overcome their enemies. Look at verse 8. But you, so there's the contrast. The idol builders, the ones who fear, the ones who tremble, and instead of turning to Yahweh, they turn to their own hands and their own strength and their own idols. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. So there we have that parallelism again of Israel and Jacob, the second time of I think nine times in the next couple of chapters to bring us to this understanding that Israel, those who have circumcised hearts are a transformed community. And they are transformed because of the grace of God. And how are they transformed now? They're not his enemies anymore, they're his servant. And this idea of servant is the first time it's being mentioned, but it is gonna carry us through chapter 53. This, this is the section that has all of the servant songs in it. Servant is going to apply to different people. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it here except to say that God's people are considered his servants, and that is not a bad thing. It's not, it's not like that we, we are a servant in the indentured servant kind of way. Let's take a look very quickly. Keep your finger in Isaiah 41, and I want you to turn to Psalm 123. 
Psalm 123, beginning in verse 1. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, look to Yahweh our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Yahweh. Have mercy upon us, for we have and for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Do you see what a favorable light it is to be a servant? Especially when we are the servant of the Most High God, the one with all the power, the one with all the righteousness, the one with all the loving kindness, the one with all the holiness, the Holy One of Israel. We are a servant of the Most High God, and so when we serve Him, we are under His protection. We are under His blessings because He is a benevolent God for His people. So when we are called a servant of the Lord, it is a grand and glorious thing. It takes the focus off of us and onto Christ. It takes all the focus away from us and onto the one in whom we live and breathe and have our being. Jacob, whom I have chosen. What a rich word. This idea of being chosen means that God, before the foundation of the world, chose a people for himself. And he chose them to the praise of his own glorious grace. And we have no right to question why he did what he did. We don't don't shake our fists at God and say, on what basis did you choose a people for yourself? We accept the word of the Lord. We accept passages that give us such clear and convicting ideas as Ephesians chapter one that starts like this. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now that's where it starts. Isn't that a good place to be? To have at our disposal every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if that's left up to you and your wisdom, how long are you going to keep those blessings? You've already lost them. They're gone because it takes perfection for those blessings. And so aren't you glad the very next verse says, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now that's the picture of being chosen. God does it, he chooses us, but then he doesn't leave it unto ourselves and say, okay, now go ahead and be holy because you have to be holy if you're gonna be with me. He chooses us for that end result. What a glorious thing. And we, it's not something that we can mess up because God is the initiator of this. So when we read back in Isaiah chapter 41 that, that Jacob, whom I have chosen, Remember, all of that Old Testament language applies to those who are in Christ. And we have that clearly in the New Testament over and over and over again. You can't read Peter's letters without understanding that God intends for all of his people to receive all of the blessings that are promised in all of Scripture. So when we read this, we read ourselves. And if we are in Christ, that's the key, isn't it? In Christ, we are chosen in Christ You can't just say, well, I'm chosen and want nothing to do with the Christ. You can't do that because the only way you're chosen is in Christ. And we already sang this morning that if we are in Christ, what is Jesus' name to us? It is beautiful. It is lovely. It is gorgeous. It is sweet to our lips. So when we read this in verse 8 of chapter 41 of Isaiah, my servant whom I have chosen, our hearts are warmed. We are a people who God has set apart for himself and a people who God has set apart to serve him in the way that he sees fit. And it also says in verse eight, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. The offspring of Abraham, my 
friend, my loving one. This is the idea of that covenant commitment that God made to Abraham. And we, according to Galatians chapter three, if we are in Christ, then we have all the blessings of Abraham because Christ is the singular seed of Abraham. So we're seeing ourselves in here in this covenant language. We are the chosen ones. We, if we are in Christ, we have been chosen by him. We're the offspring of Abraham with all the promises given to him. We are servants of the most high God, which is a, an exalted place for us to be because of his character and his work. But look at verse nine. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners. Now, if God can whistle and a pagan nation comes and do his, does his bidding, what do you think happens when he calls the people he's chosen? They come. By definition, they come. And he has called them from all over the earth to be his people. And he says, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So we have the reality that this is what he's done. And then he tells us, this is who you are. And because this is who you are, chosen, my servant, you are not going to be cast off. Now, how many places in your life can you turn today that you know that forever you will not be cast off for something that you've done? I mean, this is the, cult, the culture we live in, right? You don't do what I want, canceled. And it's becoming normal. It's becoming accepted. It's becoming demanded. But God is the one who will never leave us or forsake us because of the love of his son and the obedience of Christ. This is who we are. This is the picture of who we are. This is our identity. We are, we are God's. We are his chosen possession. We are his that he does with as he pleases and we rejoice and glory in him when he does so. And we're about to learn that he's going to do it because he is the one who has the power that we do not have. So if this is who we are, if our identity is in Christ, if we are set apart for God, by God, for his work, then how do we live our life? Verse 10, fear not. Fear not. Happens over and over and over in the scriptures because men are tempted to fear. And sometimes we're face to face with a reality that should make us fear because it's greater than us. Why do you think the shepherds were told first of all, fear not? Why do, you think, why do you think that Joseph was told first, fear not? Why do you think they were all told fear not? Because they were before a majesty that caused them to fear. And we are told to fear not, why? Because we're called according to his purpose. And everything he does for his servants, he intends to work together for good. Romans 8, 28, for those who are what? Love him and are the called according to his purpose. So we, every situation we're in, the command is fear not, do not fear. When God speaks and God acts, do not fear. When the world around us seems to overwhelm us, do not fear. 2020 was a year, I know you've forgotten 2020. It's wiped from our memories, right? It's like it didn't exist. But in 2020, the Bible app, um, Uverse, in 2020, um, it tracked 43.6 billion chapters of the Bible read, a record. Over a half a billion verses were shared. Do you know what the number one search was? Globally, the number one search in 2020? People will go to the Bible verse, the, the UVerse Bible app and search, where do I find fear not? The number one. It was also the number one searched word in 2020 um, in the United States. That was, that was globally. But individually in the United States, India, South Africa, the Netherlands, the Philippines, and in Ghana, the top verse was Philippians 4, 8, do not be anxious. And in Kenya, it was Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who are love him and are called according to his purpose. So when the tragedy hits, where do people turn? How do I not fear in the midst of something that I don't know about and can't control? This is why the churches were filled after 9-11. You remember that? After 9-11, the churches in New York City were just filled. Three or four months later, they're back to their normal, their, their normal capacity. Why? Because people aren't afraid anymore. 
They're not facing the reality that they cannot um, meet on their own. The buildings are being cleaned up. The government's taking action now. And so they leave church. Why? Because now they're back to their own strength. When things get crazy, the people who know God have nowhere else to turn but to God. But I want to tell you that you're not going to do that well if you don't do it when things are not crazy. If you don't do it in the everyday acts of your life that require faithfulness, you automatically turn to God and seek for his strength and his will. Look back at verse 10. Fear not, why? For I am with you. Isn't that a sweet uh, set of phrases in Isaiah? Remember Isaiah 7.14, the sign that was given? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. This is where we are. Jesus says in the Great Commission, all power and authority has been given to me, so you are to go, take care of your mission, and I will never leave you or forsake you. These are the promises. Now now listen, if you make that promise, you could break that promise, couldn't you? You could promise somebody, I'll never leave you and forsake you, and then all of a sudden that you might do that because you are a human being. God is truth in his very core, and he does not lie. So when he says something that I am with you, we know he's always with us in the midst of any trouble, in the midst of of any struggle that we might be in. We, even if we do not sense his presence, now this is where emotions can get us in trouble, right? I don't feel like God is with me. So you need to go do something else instead of what? Wait on him. Because the fact that you don't feel it doesn't mean it's true. The fact that you are feeling this doesn't mean it's true. The fact that you are not feeling something doesn't mean it's not true. We are basing everything we do on an authority that is outside. We're constantly asking ourselves the question that has gone around our circles for several years, by what standard? Well, if he is with us, why would we turn anywhere else? Look at the the next phrase in verse 10. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. So don't be discouraged. You're not only to be not fearful, but you're not to be discouraged. You're not to be, you're not to be overcome because God is with you. Now, if God is with you, I want you to just go through a thought experience, a thought um, experiment with me. I want you to think that even if you don't have kids, that you have a child and you, you're concerned that if they ever get lost, you want them to know your phone number and your address. And so you teach them phone number and address. And you've taught them that and they can give it back to you. And, and so one night you take them out for a walk. And when you take them out for a walk, you walk them around some places that maybe they haven't known before. And all of a sudden you stop and you say, how far are we from home? And your child says, I have no idea. Well, how would you get us home? Well, I don't know. Well, what if, what if I could get us home, but I don't know where we live? Where do we live? I, I, I don't remember. Well, it sounds like you're lost then, doesn't it? And then your child turns to you and says, no, I'm not lost. You're with me. That would be a true statement, right? You want him to be self-sufficient, but as long as you're with him, no need for that. You are safe in his, he is safe in your arms or she is safe in your arms because you will get them home. This is God with us. Only God isn't just preparing us to go out on our own. God is preparing us to go out because he is with us. And so the practice is, yes, we know our address and our phone number, but God is always with us and we are moving at his pace, on his direction, in his, the way he wants us to go, even in the midst of struggle and strife and, and trouble in our life. So be not dismayed, for I am your God. And this has been a theme all the way through, that God wants to be the God of his people and his people will be Um, that people will turn to him and know that he is their God. But he also says, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So this idea of fearing not is expanded here. Why do we not fear? Because he's with us. Why do we not fear? Because he's chosen us. Because we're his servant. We are called. Why do we not fear? Because he is never going to cast us off. Why do we not fear? Because he is our God. And no matter where we are and what we're doing, he will strengthen us. It's not our own strength, it's his strength. His strength is made perfect in our weakness, is the way Paul would say it. I will help you. Now, we're going to find help in three times in the next couple of verses, but here's what I do not want you to be thinking. Listen to me. 
I don't want you to be thinking, and believe me, if you think this verse is in the Bible, let me just take this out right now. God helps those who help themselves is not a Bible verse, right? But this says God helps us. Now, in our self-satisfactory, our self-sufficient world, what does that make us immediately think? Well, I'm going to do it in my strength, and if I need help, he'll give me help. Otherwise, I'm on my own. That's exactly the opposite of what it being said. He helps us because he's before us. He helps us because we're on his path and his plan, and we'll see that in just a moment. But this is the first of three occurrences in our verse. And I will uphold you. I will uphold you. I will... I will keep you no matter what's going on in your life and hold you up where you need to be, above the fray, above the waterline. You will always be able to breathe. I will hold because it's my righteous right hand. And remember what the right hand of God is. It's his power and it's authority, right? So this is his power, again, upholding us. So we have no worries. We have no worries about whatever we're walking through. That's why... We can fear not when God speaks and acts. And if we have this broad view of God's sovereignty, then of course, everything we're walking through, he is acting, isn't he? Nothing's outside of him. We can't look at anything and say, God, sure wish you would have had that one planned out beforehand. That was a little rough. We never have to say that. He is the sovereign God and we are holding on to him. But look what he says. Behold, All who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Put it another way, those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. And we've seen these ideas before. We've seen this idea just last chapter in verse 23, um, that, that God is the one who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The same word is used. So all of your enemies today... All of our enemies, there will come a time where they will be nothing. Now, this, this could be a challenge to you because you may want your enemies to be punished. You may want your enemies to pay a price. You may want vengeance on your enemies, but we are the ones who wait on God. So God will deal with them as he sees fit. Now, let me tell you, you might have enemies right now who are making your life miserable who are blood-bought believers, even if they're not acting like it. They could be blood-bought believers. They either may be now or will be in the future. And if they are, the sins they're committing to make your life miserable, why would you want them to pay for it if Christ has already died for them? So this this is how we act with other people. But when we have the enemies, we leave vengeance to the Lord. Because if we take that vengeance, we may taking vengeance on someone who is or will be God's prized possession. So this is reminding us, they may come to nothing. They will come to nothing. Verse 12, you shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Why? Because they're nothing. They can't even be found. You don't even see evidence of where they've been. Those who war against you shall be nothing at all. Do we have the point yet? Four different times, those who persecute you now are going to come to nothing. Why? Because God is the sovereign one and we wait on him. And he is the one with all strength and power who raises up armies. And we're waiting on him. Four, verse 13, helps us apply this. I, Yahweh, your God, hold your right hand. It is, isn't that wonderful? He upholds us with his righteous right hand, but he holds our right hand. So if we're tempted to have our right hand be our strength, just remember it's always in God's, in his strong and powerful arm. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Again, we have the picture of one who helps. Charles Spurgeon once said this, it is always weakness to be fretting and worrying, questioning and mistrusting. What can we do if we wear ourselves to skin and bone? Can we gain anything by fearing and fuming? Do we not unfit ourselves for action and unhinge our minds for wise decision? We are sinking by our struggles when we might float by faith. Oh, for grace to be confident in God. This is is why we help each other all the time see a big, glorious, wonderful, sovereign, powerful, loving God. Because it is in him that our confidence is placed. And yet we are human and sometimes we have trouble doing that, don't we? 
We have trouble keeping our confidence in God. We know what our head says, but our heart says, but look about what's going on. So we need each other to remind us of the goodness of God because it's what overcomes us that will get us in trouble. Amy Carmichael once said, it's not what we go through that causes us trouble, it's what we go under. So walking through the valley of the shadow of death is not the problem because he is with us. Buckling under the valley of the shadow of the death will be the problem because we've lost our confidence in our God. So this is what's being brought before us. Yahweh helps and his chosen and called servants overcome their enemies. But secondly, Yahweh makes powerful those who are weak and insignificant. Look at verse 14. Again, fear not, you worm Jacob. That's not very politically correct of Isaiah, is it? That doesn't fit with the you go girl mentality we have. You go, you worm, you. And it's, but yet it's a glorious place to be because it's a symbol of humility. It's nothingness. And we are nothing before our God and everything in our God. So if we're a worm, that's just a way of saying, hey, we're nothing. It's not our power. It's not our wisdom. It's not our might. It's not what we want. It's all about you. And that's a good thing because God is powerful. Look back at your text. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you man of Israel. I am the one who helps you. Third time. Now here's where we get described what the help looks like. I am the one who helps you. Declares Yahweh, our covenant God. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. So this is the broad picture of his character that we've looked at a a number of times in Isaiah so far. The idea of the holy one of Israel and Yahweh. Here we have the idea of the, the, the redeemer, the goel, the kinsman redeemer. This is what points our minds toward Christ who is the one who redeems us through his perfect work. That God is our redeemer in Christ. That Christ and God are the holy one of Israel for us. But look what he does. How does he help us? He doesn't send us out and say, okay, worm, do what you can. And if you don't accomplish my task, I'll come by and I'll help you. He starts the process. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. Now, a threshing sledge is this huge apparatus made of heavy wood with sharp metal points on the bottom of it that they would drag across a field and thresh that field, separate the corn from the husk. They, and it was powerful. If it got drug over you, you would die. It took, it took many horses to even drag these, these sleds. Now, look what he's saying. You, O worm, in my strength are a powerful sled, th- threshing sled. Now look what else he says, though. Look back at the text. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't care how big that threshing sled is. You're not taking down a mountain with that, are you? And yet you and I are worms that God gives this kind of power when he chooses to use us for his glory. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away. Mountains! And the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in Yahweh, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. So when you need power, it's the power of the resurrection, as Paul says in Ephesians, that's directed toward you. So anything he calls us to do, anything he calls us to endure or accomplish, or anything he causes us, calls us to go through, it's this kind of power that he directs in us and toward us. This is how he helps us. If you're a threshing sled that has the ability to to take down mountains, then what's your job? Go take down mountains. And this is the idea that's used in Micah chapter 3 about Israel taking down the Gentile nations that are in opposition to God. And the very next chapter in Micah chapter 5 talks about the Holy One from Bethlehem, talks about Bethlehem Ephrathah and the Savior that will come from them. So how... You say, what on earth do we need to be threshing sleds to take down mountains for? Because God has a people he's redeeming for himself. And he empowers us as his witnesses with the gospel to go and preach the gospel so his enemies become his servants. His enemies become his friends. All because before the foundation of the world, he called those people in Christ to a life of holiness This is what God does, and this is how he uses us. So we'll come back to this. So this idea of of power, making powerful those who are weak and insignificant, this is who we are. Before the world, we are powerful and insignificant. 
Alexander McLaren once said, only he who can say the Lord is the strength of my life can say of whom shall I be afraid. Only he who can say the Lord is the strength of my life. And you realize he's saying, not only just say the words, but mean it and live by it. Those are the people who say, of whom shall I be afraid? So he helps his chosen and called servants overcome their enemies. Yahweh makes powerful those who are weak and insignificant. And finally, Yahweh sustains the poor and needy. Look at verse 17. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, Yahweh, will answer them. Now, if Yahweh is going to answer them, what does that presume they have done? Called on him. So when they're thirsty, they're calling on him. Now, this isn't just physical thirst. It is meaning that, but this is the spiritual thirst that we talked about a couple of weeks ago as well. This is the spiritual thirst that God meets in us through Christ. He works this out. And then he goes on to give these these pictures. We've already seen one transformation, right? A worm into a threshing sledge. And this gives us more transformations here. Uh, This uh, four different ways of saying this transformation from poor and needy to satisfied. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. We've already come into that phrase, I'll never forsake you, because he's already told us that that, that he will not cast us off. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. So if you need water, I'll give you the water. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. So the deserts and the dry land there where there is no water, I will give it to you because you've called to me. But not only will I give you water, but I will also give you the shade you need because you're, you're parched by the sun, verse 19. I will put the wilderness, the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together so that you have shade. I am merciful to my people. Even Now think, who's he writing to? His audience is in captivity. And they're... They, how easy would it be for them to say he's forsaken us? The Holy One of Israel has forgotten his people. He is not our God because we are here. We are thirsty. We are away from our place of worship. We are being assimilated into another culture. He has forgotten us. And Isaiah is telling them, no, he hasn't. And he's reminding them that he hasn't because from the foundation of the world, you have been his. And he will provide you everything he needs. Now, we may not be in the wilderness or in, a, in, in a Babylon in captivity, but we are in the United States in captivity. We are in this world in captivity. And being thirsty and hungry is a spirit, it's not a physical thing for us, most of us, most of the time for us sitting in this room, but it is a spiritual thing. When we walk out into the world and we see what we see, we become hungry and thirsty for righteousness because we think God's not moving in this. How do we have drag queen story hours if God is Lord over our nation? How do we have all of this persecution of Christians? How do we have people who don't know whether they're a man or a woman and don't care and want to be one that they're not? How do we have this? How do we have a government who is constantly making laws that are against God's law? He's abandoned us. Wouldn't it be easy to think that? Now, for a believer, we can think he's judging us as a nation, but he hasn't abandoned his people. The promises to his people is he will give us all that we need and we will glory in him. And the word reminds us that of that at every single term, at every single turn. And how do we know that? Look at verse 20. That they, now this isn't the trees that were just spoken about. This is the hungry and thirsty people in verse 17. When he does these things, they may see and in seeing they know. So you can see and not know. You can see what's going on, but not have eyes to see, right? But God's people will see and they will know. They may consider and understand together. So we can consider that God's word has spoken to us. And when we look at our world, we don't look at our world without the promises of God. We look at our world with the promises of God. And we know that, we, that whatever's going on, he's in control of. We see And we know, we consider and we understand and we do this together in community that the hand of Yahweh has done this. This is where we started, is it not? Who is the one who raises up the one from the east? 
I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. We will know that the hand of Yahweh has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Back to the creation language again. We're being reminded here that who we are in Christ, which is Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. He is the I am in Revelation chapter one. It is his life and death and resurrection and ascension that we preach that works as the threshing sledge to bring the nations to Yahweh. This is our role in the midst of it. It's all based on Christ. He is the one. He is the I am. I know you caught that when we read that. Back to Genesis, when, when God reveals himself and he says, I am that I am, and I will do what I want. I am the one who is sovereign over everything. And Jesus and John says it's seven or eight or nine different ways, seven clear statements and two assumptions of that, doesn't he? In, in John, he says that he is the bread of life. He says he is the light of the world. He says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He also says in John that before Abraham was born, I am. The same kind of phraseology is used there. And he also says when they ask if he was Jesus, They were coming to arrest him and he says, I am he. And he didn't just say, yeah, that's me. Because when he said, I am he, they fell backward because they knew and they were shown they were in the presence of deity, the Yahweh that the Old Testament promises. He is the way and the truth and the life. If you are here this morning and you are outside of Christ and you are the one who's constantly going to your idols and you have no idea what it means to rest in him, you have no idea what it means to be his servant because you only serve yourself. You have no idea to take truth and actually apply it to your life because your truth is only inside of you. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to him except by the father. No one comes to the father except through him. So it's to him that you need to turn. He has spoken through his son, Hebrews chapter one. He is fully and finally, he's done it through the prophets, he's done it in the Old Testament, but he is, God has fully and finally spoken through his son. He has spoken and he has acted and the choice is yours. What will you do? Will you turn to your idols or will you turn to him and rest in him and his perfect work? Because he is the one who was perfect in his life and perfect in his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father and repentance of your sin, your idol making and turning to him gives you life so that you can rest in him and he renews your strength. Now, if we're here this morning and we already know Christ and we're challenged, we have parts in our, parts in our life that we're, we're struggling with this, we need to remember verses like, I am the true vine. We are connected to Christ. It is his life and his power that comes through us because we are in him. All we have to do, now listen, it's this simple and this difficult. All you have to do is crucify your sin. That's it. And all you have in your life is to crucify your sin and then you're depending on Christ. You are resting in Christ and whatever comes will strengthen you. Whatever comes will be to his glory. Whatever comes is good for you because he is the one who has ordained it. And we do this in community. Philip Crosby, in his book, March Till They Die, tells of a forced march of American and European soldiers in Korea. In November of 1950, the North Koreans were being pushed north and they were taking with them the Americans and Europeans who were their captives as prisoners of war. And in this march, they were forced to go hungry and many of them fell. They had no strength. And as they would fall, they were not allowed to pick them up. But as they would walk a little bit further, they would hear a gunshot and they would know that anyone who fell lost their life. And so the strong ones among them would circle through. The leaders who had the opportunity to circle through the ranks would begin to whisper things like this. God is near us in this dark hour. His love is real. His mercy is real. His forgiveness is real. His reward is waiting for us. God is near us in this dark hour. His love is real. His mercy is real. His forgiveness is real. His reward is waiting for us. And it strengthened the people on this death march. This is what we do with each other. 
We remind ourselves who God in Christ is, what he's done, how he's spoken, and that our response as believers is to crucify sin and follow him. And so when we struggle with our identity in this world, and listen, you struggle with your identity every time you turn to your own wants and desires and your own wisdom instead of his. And we are struggling in that. We're reminding ourselves of the truth of God's word, and we're saying things like this, who are we? We're servants of Christ. We're chosen by God. We're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We're called by God. We're loved by Christ. We're never cast off. God is with us. Therefore, we know that he holds and sustains us. We fear not. We are not dismayed. We are not overcome by our enemies. We are strengthened and empowered by God. We are the threshing sledges of our God. We are sustained by God. So we wait on him to renew our strength. That's what we tell each other. Father, we are grateful for your word and we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself in your word. And there's so much, Father, that you tell us about your work in us and how you have moved, how you have worked to save us. And we are so overwhelmed by that. And yet we are at times struggled, we struggle at times to remind ourselves that it's your truth that it's your son, that our identity is in Christ and Christ alone, that you from the foundation of the world have chosen us to walk in holiness before you. So help us, Father, help us in the journey, help us connect our heart with our head, help us with each other, helping each other to do this. Give us that voice in the community that stands for reason, that we can proclaim that truth is outside of us. And our identity is in the one who loved us and gave himself for us so that he lives in us. We ask you, Father, to do this for your glory, that we might rejoice in you and glory in you and not in ourselves. For being a worm is a proper and glorious place for us to be before our God. Thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.